Welcome back. This is Mark Steiner, and welcome back here to the Mark Steiner Show and to Soundbite, our weekly look at food, farming, and our environment. You're listening here to Soundbite, which is produced here out of Baltimore, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community, and also broadcast on Marvel Public Radio at WSDL 90.7 FM. And we are starting off our Soundbites this week. Uh, looking and honoring our veterans on this Veterans Day, as we did at the top of the hour in the last program that we did. We're about to talk to Matt Saldano, who is a Marine Corps veteran, owner of Southtown Farms in Mawa, New Jersey, and Justin Garrity, founder and president of Veteran Compost in Aberdeen, Maryland. And Justin and Matt, welcome. Good to have you both with us. How you doing? Hey, thank you. Thank you both, and thank you both for your service, and for being here on the show today here on The Mark Steiner Show. Uh, and you all can join us at 410-319-8888. Write to us here at Steiner Show, at, at talk at steinershow.org. You can uh, tweet me at Mark Steiner. Jump onto our Facebook pages, 410-319-8888. Um, so, gentlemen, good to have you both here. And uh, Monty, in about I guess, six minutes, we're going to take a quick stop to remember veterans at here on this day of 11-11-11. Um, and we'll talk a bit about that, Armistice Day and Defenders Day, in just a few minutes. But uh, let me start with you, Justin, and talk a bit about what you founded here in Veteran Compost. What is that? And you, now you, you served, you were an, an officer in the Army, right? Correct. So I was a uh, combat engineer officer. I did 10 years in the Army. Um, and so when I got back from the desert, I uh, had trouble finding a job uh, back in 2009. So I started looking around at opportunities, things I could start with the, the money in my pocket. So I'm originally from Maryland. And uh, when I came home, just started to uh, to look at different businesses that were sustainable and kind of came across composting. And as I studied that more and more, um, you know, in about six to eight months, found myself living on a farm, suddenly running a compost business. So, and so it was, and that was a conscious decision? That was a conscious decision, yes. Uh, some days, some days not good for the social life, but... Uh, <laughs> Farming is never good for a social life. You should know that by now. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so talk about what, what Veterans Compost is. We're a uh, commercial and residential composter of food scraps. So we collect food scraps six days a week from residential and commercial customers all the way from northern Virginia to northern Maryland. Everything from seven-gallon bins on people's doorsteps to, um, you know, large bins at supermarkets and hospitals, at the Ravens, places like that. Uh, All that material comes back to the farm that I have here in Aberdeen, Maryland, north of Baltimore, and we compost that material. So we have staff that's driving trucks collecting material, and we have staff here that is unloading the trucks and composting the material. So in about three months, it goes from people's hamburgers and hot dogs and vegetables and pasta uh, back into soil that farmers and gardeners can use to, to grow new food. And Matt, welcome to the program. Good to have you with us as well, Matt Saldano. And, and you, were, you, you served as a Marine in Iraq, Afghanistan? Uh, yes, sir. I was in Iraq from 2004 to 2005. And you came, were you a farmer before you went to war? Uh, no, sir. Actually, I grew up in suburban America, uh, pretty, I wouldn't say white-collar, but it was upper-middle-class neighborhood. Um, I really had no no beginnings in farming at all. kind of just accidentally fell into it when I got out of the, uh, out of the Marine Corps. What do you mean you accidentally fell into it? Uh, I had moved on a property with my fiance, now my wife, uh, and her father had a couple chickens, so <laughs> he gave me a few to see if uh-huh. I was interested in it. And six turned into 12, turned into 20, turned into a couple hundred, turned into turkeys, turned into, you know, it just keeps evolving every year. So, <laughs> so you know, one of the things I've been reading is that, that you know, that, that uh, many, many women who come back from, uh, from the battlefront um, come back, um, and they, it's hard not to come back w- with some issues floating through your heart and head just because of what people have seen and been through. And people react to it and deal with it in many different ways. Um, and one of the things I've been reading a lot about and some of the work that's been on some of these websites, Veteran Compost and more, um, is, what, is, is, is the power of putting your hands in the earth, uh, of the healing work that farming can, can that, that, that the aspect of that, from men and women who have come back. I mean, how do you all think? Look, look at that, Matt. I mean, certainly, I I understand that. Actually, for me, I don't really put my hands in the earth at all. I don't uh, I don't grow any produce. I grow livestock, but um, I, I certainly I, I certainly get that the healing power of working with animals. Um, you really you you have to work at their speed. There's no pushing. There's no rushing. Uh, if if you push a 300 pound pig. It's going to push back, and he's going to win, and you're not. So, uh, 
So you, you better just take it easy, and you got to work at their pace. Uh, farming is very military-oriented. Uh, everything happens on a schedule. You have to do the same task every single morning and every single night, no matter Christmas, raining, snowing, whatever. There's no holidays. So in that sense, it gives you that sense of belonging, that sense of need, just like the military does. So it's, it's been an easy transition for myself. Justin? Yeah, I think that, you know, the thing that I really enjoy is it's purposeful work. I, I don't know that I could have come back from, you know, all those years in the Army and, and just gone to somewhere to, to make or sell widgets or, or work in the cubicle. I, I really like, and I think the the guys and girls that work, work here agree that, you know, the bigger picture, you know, yeah, you're out maybe picking up food scraps, but really as part of, you know, fixing the food system and, um, and you know, the people that we market our, our soil products to that are growing and feeding people. And so, uh, you know, the purpose and the mission that comes with the job I think makes it bigger than the job itself, which, you know, is the thing about the military that I always enjoyed. I, I guess you all are aware of the Farmer Veteran Coalition? Correct. Yeah, I've, I've been a member yeah. for a couple of years now. I think it, Matt is as well. Is that Justin? Yes, sir. Yeah, so, so talk a bit about that. I mean, that was really fascinating way of finding that that's where I was get, coming for this notion idea and talking to some other people about um, this idea that, that, that the Farmer Veteran Coalition helping some veterans come through, even those who have never... Um, uh, been a farmer, did not live in rural areas, urban areas, wherever, that is part of the, of not just healing, but also feeding America, how those th- two things fit together for veterans. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm just like Matt, uh, that I, I grew up in Columbia. I went to Wild Lake High School. I lived right by the mall, you know, for people that are from Baltimore. Um, so I'm not a farm person by trade, um, but this is what I got into. And, and the Farmer Veteran Coalition is a great nonprofit that really is kind of focused on, um, you know, training veterans and, and helping other organizations that want to help veterans to get into agriculture. You know, we have a lot of unemployed veterans. Our, our unemployment rate for combat vets is twice that of the average, national average for, for people our age. Uh, so there's a lot of us out of work, and these aren't the kind of people you want out of work. And then number two, the average age of a farmer in this country is ever rising. You know, on the eastern shore of Maryland, the average farmer is 65 years old. So how many more years can they climb in the tractor and bring in the harvest? So, you know, it kind of fixes two problems at once, putting, putting veterans to work and, and uh, you know, bringing new blood into the agriculture community. Um, so I've been a member for a couple of years. I think it's great in terms of helping people with find resources. If they need a tractor, if they need livestock to get started, hooking them up with mentors. If you're someone like me, who's never come into farming, you know, maybe connecting with people that can help you. And then also just the camaraderie. You know, they have events uh, throughout the year where you can just go and, and be around other veteran farmers and kind of talk about the issues. And, you know, even people that aren't in the compost field that are growing orchard products, you know, we all have similar issues and similar experiences. So, you know, it really helps the, with the community aspect as well. So, uh, yeah, the greatest, the greatest thing for me with the Farmer Veteran Coalition has just been the connections that it's made me. Um, the, the funding and everything has been great, but just the mentors that to know that if I have a problem with any of my animals, help is no more than a phone call away. There's a handful of guys that know what they're doing, and they're more than willing to help me out 24 hours a day. Uh, I want to take just a very quick 30-second break here and not take long. But uh, we went a little past it. But this, uh, on this day in 1918, uh, on the 11th month uh, and of the 11th hour of the day, 11 minutes in, um, World War I stopped. That was the beginning of Armistice Day, which was the beginning of Veterans Day, when every man and woman who fought in that field of war stopped. And there was silence. And people felt the presence of God, they said. Let's just take 30 seconds, come back to our guests. We're back, and we wanted to stop and remember all the men and women who fought. Um, Armistice Day was a day when you remember what war was about. It became Defender's Day on this 11th month, in the 11th hour, in the 11th minute, when all those men stopped in 1918. Gentlemen, I'm sorry, but I thought that was an important break for all of us to take. Uh, I agree. And I, so, you know, I, I think that this is, this is an interesting concept, though, when you think about it. If we, we think about the new farming movement that's taking place in America and people really trying uh, to find new ways of uh, growing the food that we eat, um, where people um, 
uh, are running operations that are smaller, feeding bodies of people, and what that might mean. And I and I and I, I wonder when you could you could take that out even further than we are now at the moment with this idea of veterans, veteran farmers, and what that could mean. And if that was really pushed as a major idea for people, for men and women coming back, how much do you think that could grow? What do you think that could mean, Justin? You know, I think, yeah, as you talked about the food system, I think there's going to have to be changes uh, in the next, you know, 10 or 20 years just in general in the food system um, as we look to be more local and be more food, to, you know, food security and, and water security and things like that become issues worldwide the next 20 years. Um, so like I said earlier, I think it's, you know, it's an opportunity to market this career field to veterans as an opportunity to kind of continue that, you know, you know, protect and serve kind of role where veterans can kind of step up and, and take the lead in, in redefining what the food system is going to be. How do you see that, Matt? I mean, you see there's a possibility talking to you about your brothers and sisters you might have served with and coming back. Oh, certainly. I uh, like I said, I I think it's a great it's a great field of work. It would be a great and easy transition into. Um, you know, to drop your rifle and pick up a pick up a shovel, pick up a plow. Um, it would be it would be great to see more federal involvement in pushing veterans towards agriculture careers. Uh, I think I think it's an easy transition and it's a needed thing in our society, certainly. I was thinking how, you know, there's at the United Nations that that part where they say turn our swords into plowshares. Um, in some in some interesting way, this is kind of a it could be an interesting transition. I mean, just that whole notion of turning our swords into plowshares and how we become the food makers and the peacemakers, um, and that how that grows naturally in some ways, Justin, out of just being out of the out of the life of a warrior. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I think, like you had said earlier, there are there are a lot of studies that that you know, doing this field of growing and and being around the farming and, and as Matt said about the pace of it and things like that, that's very therapeutic. I know it. You know, Walter Reed and a lot of places there are. They're bringing using gardens and things for healing gardens and and things like that. So I think there's a huge therapeutic value to all this. And um, and yeah, I mean, I think that anyone who's been overseas and been to combat doesn't come back generally wanting more combat. So I think you have a generation of people that are coming back and, and that are kind of done with that. You know, I, I can't speak to Matt's experience, but when I got back, after all, all everything was said and done, my 20s were over. I was about done with with serving in, in crazy places and look forward to. You know, having a more peaceful way of life. Ten years is a long time to serve, <laughs> which you yeah, did. Yeah, I got a lot, I got more gray hair now, but at least it's still on my head. I'll take it. <laughs> Matt, how would you respond to what Justin just said? No, it's certainly um, the the quiet the quiet pace of life is um, you know it, it's nice being in the military. It's a it's a great experience, and I do it all over again if I could. Um, I wouldn't certainly wouldn't stay in the military. It's not a career for me. But I enjoyed my time immensely, and it was—it's a nice breather to get out into the real world, be your own boss, make your own money, um, set your own hours, and at the end of the day, you're right, it's very therapeutic working, working outside, working with your body again. You know what I've noticed in, in looking um, at the website of a Farmer Veteran Coalition is that the veterans who are doing this, I mean, are, are, are crossing all kinds of lines, both racially in terms of gender, men and women, uh, people in, in cities starting urban farms, people going to Nebraska to, to create fields, people working in California, um, uh, with Navy women veterans, their stories. I mean, the, the, well, the beauty of some of this, Justin, is, is, the, is the kind of breadth of people who said, this is, a way to, this is a way to change my life, to change America, to change what we do. Right. I mean, you know, the military, I know a lot of times is kind of stereotyped to be a certain group of people. But really, my experience in the military was that it's a a wide range of people from every social and racial background in in our country. And I think, yeah, Farmer Veteran Coalition is kind of bringing some of that to farming, where there's a lot of people that you would not expect with tattoos or piercings or, uh, (laughs) you know, lifestyles that are not typical of your your farmer in the John Deere ad. And I, I think that's pretty cool. And I think that among all those people, uh, you know, the attitude is very similar that, you know, they're all there to share and, and to help each other. And like Matt said, people are only a phone call away. And I think that same camaraderie comes along that, you know, that's one thing you learn in the military is it doesn't matter what anyone, who they are or where they're from or, or what they look like. You know, you're all serving together and you're all there to help each other. And I, I think that crosses over as we bring some of that to, to agriculture and our, our organization. So it's two guys who never farmed before. So Matt, I, I got it. Matt Saldano. I mean, so when you when you started when, when you first decided to become a farmer, 
and take this on with these chickens that your father-in-law had. I mean, what were some of the kind of experiences at the, at the, at the beginning of all this that might have made you say, hey, why am I doing this? And this is not what I expected. Well, when when you wake up and uh, and all of your all of your chickens have got killed by a raccoon or a fox in the backyard, and that, and you got to, I mean, you're just starting out, but you got to restart again. It's one of those days when you you say, "Well, why am I doing this?" Or uh, you know, middle of October, forty degrees, raining. You're uh, you're knee deep in chicken manure, and you're, you're trying to clean everybody out and keep them dry and make sure the food stays dry for them. Um, you know, it's, every day it's a new experience, and I think that's what draws veterans to agriculture. Is it's it's certainly far from mundane, <laughs> as any farmer will attest to. Justin, uh, I agree. I'm having flashbacks to to everything as well. I mean, there's days you know that you're out there at 5 a.m. in the dark in the rain, and you realize you're already behind schedule. And it's 5 a.m. on a Saturday. It's like, how did I get here? You know, why am I not working at why am I not working at Hero Price cash and checks? So what am I doing? I, am, I haven't seen a weekend in a couple of years. I, I almost look forward to Monday morning when the markets are over. <laughs> There's almost a, the question is at least it's at one point in the service you had R and R. Where is it for a farmer? Uh, <laughs> good question. <laughs> I don't know. So we, we just had a, a question coming in from a listener. Valerie asked a question to and, and curious about Matt since you raise animals uh, about his uh, his his um, feeling of responsibility toward humane treatment of his animals? Um, to be honest, I don't know any other way. Um, I was, I, I kind of do think the way I raise my livestock is I, I like to think of there's a customer always watching me. And if they want to approve of something I do, I probably shouldn't be doing it. Even if I could justify my behavior, um, if somebody wouldn't want me treating their food like that, don't do it. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's just food. At you know, it is food at the end of the day. But um, but they're they're living creatures that we're working with, and they deserve to be respected as such. Just because they're animals, that doesn't mean anything. I mean, that's an important point. I mean, I think that's a big debate in in America, getting bigger in terms of people want to know where their animals come, where their meat comes from, and and how it was raised, and how we raise our chickens, how we raise our pigs, how we raise any other animal we're raising. Um, what does that mean, that extra added burden, if it is one, for you, Matt, and others who really want to kind of let their animals kind of roam and not be full of antibiotics? What does that take? I mean, it, it takes a lot of work, but like I said, I don't know any other way. Um, there is no easy way of raising livestock, in my mind, just as I've always raised them outdoors, free-ranging, you know, the, the whole nine yards. Um, so I guess... The, the idea of you know, confinement lots where it's just push-button agriculture, where you push a button to feed them, push a button to water them, and then that's it. I've never seen that, um, so I don't know any other way. And by doing it this way for years, I discovered, hey, this is what I would like to do. And then I start to read more about confinement operations. I start to see a couple. like I, I know a few people that run them, and, hey, that's fine. You know what? I'm not going to judge the way you make a living. But it's just not for me. Um, I'd like to see these animals treated with respect and being able to express themselves freely as any pick, chicken or pig should. And I think at the end of the day that that's what the customer wants. So that's how I, uh, that's how I make my living. Justin, I, I, I mean, you, that, that, that world, I think, is, 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 is part of what's changing agriculture. And I, I really do um, I really do think, and this, uh, this is not too philosophical or silly, but I don't think it is, that there's some connection between that, having been a warrior, seeing stuff people see that most people do not see unless they've been through it, don't quite understand it, and the notion of being able to do things differently back here on the land and with your animals. Justin? Oh, was that directed towards yeah, you? I'm sorry, oh. I was, yeah, I'm sorry, man, that was you. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah, I mean, I, I don't, I don't, uh, we don't have any livestock here this season. We, we probably will next year. I think we're going to do some hogs and chickens. Um, but, I mean, in our case of, you know, following along that similar line about, you know, doing what the customer, imagine the customer's always watching you. I mean, we're, we're pretty heavily regulated in our facility. We're the only permitted facility in Maryland. And there, you know, are opportunities where we probably could have cut corners and, and it would have been cheaper to operate. We could have made a couple extra bucks. But, you know, I think integrity is a big, important thing for us. 
and the way that we choose to do business. Um, I don't have any investors. If I did, they'd probably be very frustrated at the, the rate at which we grow and how we choose to do business. But, you know, that whole idea of, of integrity and doing the right thing, uh, as Matt mentioned, is, is how we do business as well. As, you know, our customers are, are many of them, many noteworthy businesses around Baltimore, and they expect us to, to handle things properly. So, I'll come back. I'm really curious, Justin, about one thing that we talked about at the very beginning, this whole idea of veteran compost that you started um, and what you collect. I mean, so you're literally collecting your compost from the stuff to make compost from all across the Baltimore area? Is that what you're doing? Right. So we have we have bins, just like you would see large wheeled bins at the curb for recycling day. We have right. a fleet of bins that we own, and they're behind hospitals, supermarkets, restaurants, sports venues. Um, and we're out there every day with trucks on routes collecting those uh, and bringing them back here. So we're taking all that food waste that would otherwise go to the landfill, and we're responsibly composting it here at our facility to take it from food waste back to soil. So, and you, so is all that compost used on your farm directly, or do you share it with other farmers? Uh, we, market, we market the vast majority of it to farmers, and, and a large portion of it is directed to homeowners or home gardeners. So uh-huh. That's where we see a lot of it goes right back into Baltimore to urban farms and people's backyards. I mean, I think in recent years, as people want to know more and more about where their food comes from, where they're inspired to start to grow their own, there's been a huge demand for, they want to know where their soil comes from. And since we produce an organic product, uh, there's been a big demand for our soil products, you know, in farms and, and garden environments. No, I, and I wonder how, and I'll, let me start with you again, Justin, maybe Matt can jump in on this before we end. I'm, I'm curious how you think those kind of models could change things in a larger way because it seems like a logical step just to be able to do that just across every city and community in America that could change the way where we get our fertilizer for farms, uh, where, and, and I have no idea what the math would be, but for our backyards and everything else. I mean, this is, you know, it's, it's, it seems like a no-brainer in some levels. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of local forces at play and a lot of global forces as well. I think, you know, I certainly expect in my generation without going too far down the rabbit hole on, you know, <laughs> agri, agri situations and uh, I don't want to start reading passages from Omnivore's Dilemma and stuff, but, you know, there, there is a, there's peak phosphorus will happen in our lifetime. The access to fertilizers and water and food across the world is going to become very challenging. And whether you care about it because you care about it or whether you simply care about the economics of it, I think that local food systems, more sustainable food systems are going to happen either way, whether it be for societal or ethical reasons or it's for economic reasons. And, and I'm more banked on the economic reasons um, to move the market. I, I, that's what we've built our business around, that that's going to happen in, in the next 5, 10, 20 years. Well, I, I just think I'm, I'm really um, excited about this whole I, of, of Veterans to, to Pharma Coalition uh, that's going on. The Pharma Veteran Coalition will be uh, uh, putting that on our website at farmvetco.org so you all can see it, uh, see the work of the Veteran Compost, what they're doing here. Uh, first, let me say to, to Justin Garrity, founder and president of the Veteran Compost uh, out of Aberdeen, Maryland, uh, U.S. Army veteran served 10 years in Korea, Kuwait, and Iraq, uh, Matt Saldano, Marine Corps veteran, uh, owner of Southtown Farms in Mawa, New Jersey. Thank both of you for the service uh, to this country and the work you did there, uh, and thank you for the work you're doing now to help feed our country. Yeah, thank you so much, sir. I appreciate you having us on. Good to talk to you both. Y'all take care. Have, a, right. good, have a good Veterans Day. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Take care. We're going to take a very brief break as we uh, t- uh, turn from uh, farmers and veterans to the world of this last election in the state of Maryland uh, and uh, how we think uh, that will affect farming and agriculture in our bay in the upcoming state legislature and what those issues might have meant to this election. Stay with us. We'll be right back with the Mark Steiner Show and Sound Bites for the second half. Don't go away. Welcome back. This is Mark Steiner, and here we are looking at uh, 
More information on our sound bites for this week here on WEAA, the Mark Steiner Show on Sound Bites, and WEAA 80.9 FM, the Voice of the Community, and our broadcast on the Marva Public Radio, WSCL 90.7 FM across Delmarva. Uh, as we look at how this election um, was affected by issues around the environment, uh, and around taxes in the environment, and what they might portend for the future. Now, before we turn here, immediately to Alan Prost, who's in the studio. Prost? Prost? Prost. Prost. All right, I thought I had it right the first time, who is the uh, Maryland Executive Director of the Chesapeake Bay Foundation, and Tim Wheeler, f- reporter for Be More Green, the Baltimore Sons of Ireland blog. Tim welcome, ba- uh, Tim, welcome back. Good to have you with us as well. Uh, nice to be here, Mark. Always good to have you. Uh, we are now going to be joined first by Delegate Shane Robinson. Uh, Shane is a uh, Democrat from Maryland's 39th District in Montgomery County, a member of the House Environmental Matters Committee, sponsored the Poultry Fair Share Act, uh, which was uh, ultimately withdrawn, uh, but caused a huge amount of controversy. So welcome, Shane, as well, here to the Mark Steiner Show. Thank you very much. It's great to be here, Mark. And we were going to have on the Delegate Otto and some others who have a very different perspective than Shane, but they were all uh, deeply involved in in uh, uh, in veterans' activities and could not join us today, but we'll have that discussion in the coming weeks. Um, and you all can join us at 410-319-8888. You can uh, write to us here at talk at org. Tweet me at Mark Steiner. Log on to our Facebook pages, but 410-319-8888. So actually, we can all chime in. Shane, I know, is only joining us here for the first uh, number of minutes of the program. Uh, the, the other guests will stay through the top of the hour. Um, but let's start off with Shane. I mean, I think that when you look at this last election, Issues around the environment, I think, played a role in this. Um, issues around the rain tax played a role, what people call the rain tax, um, uh, because that's what it became popularly known as, and it, it went across many ideological spectrums. So talk a bit about what you think might have affected that and, and the mistakes that maybe some environmentalists may have made in the process. Well, first of all, uh, talking about the storm water fee as a, as yes. a rain tax was a masterful way to frame it because when people think that we're actually taxing the rain, obviously you're going to get people frustrated about that. But we're going to have to do our part on the education end, and I think we'll have that opportunity because it looks like we'll be playing defense on some of those issues, which will give us a chance to really tell people what the stormwater fee is really about. You know, one of the things I I found really interesting, uh, Brenton Mock could not join us today, who has been on the show many, many times, who... Um, writes now for grist.org uh, and, uh, and looks at questions of environmental justice and lives in Washington, D.C., so we follow the mayoral election very closely. And, and Fred Tutman, who is the only African-American I know who is a riverkeeper in the state of Maryland, he's the production riverkeeper, um, who um, is a really interesting mind to think, who teaches at St. Mary's College as well. One of the things that Fred said, and I'm going to get him on the air to talk a bit about this, um, he was, uh, here's the quote, he was particularly miffed uh, about this, about this, uh, about about the uh, stormwater uh, fee, he said because stormwater management fees should have applied to real estate businesses and developers that create the impervious services to begin with. They weren't. They were only given to people who own homes, and that if you were a homeowner, let's say, and I, mean, I don't know how many of us in this phone call are homeowners, but we can all chime in on this. Uh, I am. Are you Allison? I am. Uh, and uh, are you also Tim a homeowner? I'm afraid so. Yes. And and <laughs> and Shane, you're a homeowner. That's right. All right. So. If we homeowners say, okay, I'm going to fix my house up so that all the rainwater that comes off my house, I catch and reuse for my garden, reuse and recycle for washing my dishes, for cleaning whatever that thing is in my home, and use it for my house, that I'm still charged for, my, for this stormwater runoff fee. That, and, oh. and, so, and that's one of the reasons these things, I mean, this, this thought was maybe not thought through completely. Allison, what are you going to say? Um, that's not actually the case. It depends which jurisdiction you're in. Many of the counties do have credits for your stormwater fee if you do the very things like rain barrels, rain gardens. That was one of the um, items mentioned in the state statute, that there needed to be a credit program that extended to private businesses as well as homeowners. And it was up to the jurisdictions to set that up, but it was a requirement of the fee structure that credits be a part. Every jurisdiction has taken that differently in terms of what percentage of your fee, but the the goal is that we want the pollution stopped. So if a homeowner decides to do it, then you're not drawing on the public system and you don't need to pay in. So, so therein, Tim Wheeler, in some ways, I think was the problem from the very beginning before we turn back to Delegate Robinson which is that this way this bill was first designed, every jurisdiction had its own way of doing things. So it was 
So George Nixon is going to oppose it, create the opposition to it, because, oh, we're going to just charge you a penny. Because that's what we're going to do, because we oppose it to other jurisdictions that did more stringent things. And I think therein also is why the political issue, partially of the well, political issue. Uh, the, when it was adopted, uh, the, uh, the notion that every locality would have their own uh, freedom to decide, uh, you know, how, how large a fee to uh, levy and how to levy it and what credits to give, uh, that local uh, flexibility was seen as, the, uh, as a political plus. Uh, once it took effect, however, those who uh, uh, opposed the fee uh, attacked it as being, uh, you know, inconsistent and confusing across the uh, across the state and the region. Uh, you know, there are credits. Uh, some jurisdictions are more uh, generous with uh, giving credits than others. Um, and you know, I've heard the argument a lot about, you know, well, no rainfall runs off of my property. Of course, you're not uh, an island under yourself. You're part of a community, and you use. Uh, you know, you use the roads, you use uh, parking lots and other things, and you use uh, public uh, facilities that also create runoff, and, and we ha I guess everybody has a share in that. But there was, a, there was indeed a huge uh, messaging and information problem here with this, and, uh, and obviously the, uh, the rain tax was the uh, you know, signature rallying cry of the, those who, uh, you know, uh, the Hogan campaign that uh, criticized the O'Malley administration for raising so many taxes and fees, and they even taxed the rain, was the slogan that, uh, that came out. Shane? Well, for me, I think the, the spirit of the law is certainly to not charge anybody for any rain that stays on your property. It's only the, the water that actually leaves it. And what's important to understand is that stormwater infrastructure is very expensive and somebody has to pay for it. And to me, it's fair if it's leaving your property because you haven't managed the stormwater, then you need to help pay into the costs that are going to manage that stormwater in a way that it's, it's not polluting the bay. But and it's highly expensive to do that. I'm curious about it. I understand this because it's, it's, a very, it's a tough one because I think that across the board, and we heard in the show yesterday, across the board, uh, Democrats and Republicans uh, white, black, Asian, Latino, all calling the show, saying uh, we're taxed too much as it is and this doesn't make any sense. And I think that was a popular sentiment in, in Maryland because of the way this was done. And I, and I go back to what Protection Member Keeper Fred Tutman said um, about uh, the, why was this not applied to the real estate businesses and developers who create the impervious services to begin with? Why is it just us who have so to pay? There is a commercial sector um, in all the jurisdictions that have to pay the fee, and I think in almost all instances, the commercial properties have a higher fee to pay per square foot than um, homeowners. The other thing is is that as new businesses go in the ground, they have higher stormwater management practices that they have to do. There's more they have to do to control their pollution as we build new properties. The idea of the stormwater fee was to started to clean up all those properties that were built before we knew stormwater was a problem, before we realized that we were just paving over our natural filters. So the, the polluted runoff problem is twofold. New properties, and that's what we get at through construction regulations, and then existing properties that had no controls. And the fee in this dedicated money is supposed to help with those properties that were put in before we knew, again, that there was a problem. Shane, do you want to jump in on this? Now, how long can you stay with this, Shane, by the way? Oh, I'm, I'm yours till the top of the hour. Okay, cool. Well, go ahead. Then, then. Uh, I, I think that's exactly right. She, she stated it perfectly, and I agree completely. So where do we think, you know, and, and you're looking through your, your political crystal ball, Tim Wheeler. Let's talk a bit about what we think is going to happen because this election has changed things. I mean, A, because you saw the public sentiment around issues like this um, and, the, and, and how you think that things may change in this coming session when it comes to issues around the environment and farming and more? Well, you've got, uh, you know, of course, you've got a Republican administration, a Republican state house, uh, but it's still a democratically controlled uh, General Assembly. So I think uh, Shane's comment that the Democrats in the General Assembly are going to be playing defense a lot uh, may be apt. Um, obviously, uh, you know, much is going to depend on the tack that uh, Governor-elect Hogan takes. Uh, but a lot of things, if he wants to change them, he's going to need the legislature's cooperation. The rain tax is a perfect example, if you want to call it a stormwater fee. Uh, that was passed by the legislature, signed by uh, uh, Governor O'Malley. Uh, in order to uh, repeal it or to lift that requirement, 
um, you know, the legislature would have to act. Uh, there were have been attempts in the last two sessions since the uh, stormwater fee was approved to uh, to roll it back or to put it on hold or to uh, to change it uh, significantly, uh, reduce it, and and grant uh, lots of waivers, and those failed for a variety of reasons. Uh, generally because the uh, leadership, uh, the Democratic leadership in the General Assembly did not want to see those passed, um, uh, specifically in the House, uh, was where the uh, sort of the major, uh, uh, you know, blockade against any major uh, changes in the in repeal or delay of the, uh, of the fee. Uh, so he's going to have to do that. There's a lot, though, of course, that an administration can do in terms of uh, just, you know, how they enforce the laws, and and so uh, failing getting the General Assembly to go along with a repeal of the stormwater fee, there may be some uh, this you know decision to grant more flexibility to uh, to jurisdictions such as what this administration has granted to uh, Carroll County and to Frederick County, where they charge either nothing or uh, one one cent, which is technically uh, in line with the law, but uh, you know not exactly uh, the spirit. That's where I could see some of these problems kind of arise. I'll go back to Shane next about this. I mean, this, this I could see this becoming a, a real issue in the next in the next legislative session. As Tim mentioned, there have been bills the last two sessions. Last session, there were 20 bills, um, give or take a few, to change the rain tax, and all of them were defeated. Some of them didn't even get a hearing. Most of them didn't make it out of subcommittee. And that is in large part because the jurisdictions want them to stay in place. The ones that are taking it seriously are recognizing how good this is for their communities. If you look at Prince George's County, they want this money because they want to put the projects in the ground. And so they don't want it to be changed. So we had allies saying, listen, we've taken the hit. We have the fee in place. We have our credit system. Now we want to show the communities what we can do. And I think you'll see that again because more projects are in the ground now. You know, it's, it would cause a huge problem at the local level for them to try to undo these fees because it doesn't change the problem. You know, they can, um, you know, figure out how to maybe nominalize the fees, but it doesn't the water quality concerns remain election aside the science remains election aside so if they don't have dedicated funds to get this done they still are under a federal obligation and a obligation to their residents to provide clean water so, Shane how do you I mean it's that this has a question also a question of leadership in the house and the senate especially on the senate side and the fact that the that the governor would want to see something done I'm not quite sure how the process works. What do you think is going to happen this next session? Well, I think it is difficult to roll back any of the legis legislation without the support of the Assembly. I'm not sure, in light of the election results, what this will do to the resolve of my colleagues. I'm hoping that they'll stay resolved about this, because issues like this are really where the rubber meets the road. I mean, we can choose to roll back this fee and just allow stormwater to run into one of the most important estuaries in the world and then deal with those consequences, or we can do something about it. And I hope that this is where we all agree, we're all for the Bay, we all recognize how important it is, and that we're going to protect it through these measures. Because if we don't do it, then who is? Well, I, I, I think that will be maybe one of the issues. I, I can see the politics of this kind of coming very murky, Tim. I guess it's going to be very tough to rescind it, but clearly the administration, this new administration, is, 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 um, is clear about what it wants to do in terms of rolling back taxes and, and seeing how that would fit. I mean, because then you also have things like um, I know that Shane introduced, which we'll talk about in a moment, the Poultry Fair Share uh, Act um, that didn't go very far. Other people are going to push it even harder on some levels in this session, but then you have this phosphorus management tool that was supposed to kind of monitor phosphorus coming off in the bay where 41% of the of, of the problems in the bay come from there immediately, but that could be done on arrival right now. It, it could be. It's possible that the uh, Mali administration could, uh, uh, you know, move this through and, and finalize it before the uh, end of the session, but the time is, uh, the clock is ticking and, and there's very little time left. And it's possible also that a regulation that uh, is, is imposed can be lifted as well. Um, you know, when uh, Governor-elect Hogan was campaigning, um, I interviewed him, uh, you know, before the, uh, the heat of the uh, election campaign got started and talked about en uh, environmental issues. And uh, he made it very clear that he felt that uh, basically that uh, 
Uh, Maryland should stop asking its farmers, its homeowners, and its businesses uh, should stop putting so much of the burden for cleaning up the bay on them and shift it uh, up the Susquehanna River to those states, uh, upriver up states like uh, Pennsylvania and New York. Uh, he was uh, getting much of his environmental advice during the campaign from the Clean Chesapeake Coalition, uh, which is a, a sort of a group of uh, essentially the rural and, and some of the uh, uh, exurban counties uh, who uh, have uh, opposed things like the stormwater fee, uh, septic uh, development limits, and um, and uh, some of the uh, fisheries regulations that the uh, O'Malley administration has taken. So it'll be interesting to see if uh, if he you know sticks to that line. Uh, he's also said he would be bipartisan in approach. So uh, it'd be very interesting to see which uh, how he tacks on this. Folks, we want you to join us here at 410-319-8888. Your thoughts on um, on what may come next, on the PMT, on your rain tax, why you voted and how you voted, what you think this next session will do, 410-319-8888. Write to us here at talk at steinershow.org. You can log on to our Facebook pages. Tweet me at Mark Steiner, 410-319-8888. We want to hear your thoughts. So I wonder how you, you know, this is you, you, one of the prime things, Alan Prost, that uh, the Chesapeake Bay Foundation does is to push legislation and to work in the legislature. That's been a, kind of the primary vehicle of, of your work. So well, what do you see as coming up? I mean, not in terms of, uh, I mean, that's just in, in terms of where the issues might be. I mean, this clearly is going to be a change. You know, we identified this fall and put out the critical actions needed over the next four years to clean up the bay and our local rivers and streams. And we don't think the election has changed that because, as I said earlier, the election hasn't changed the science. It hasn't changed the problems we're seeing, and it hasn't um, changed the areas where we need to do more. We know more needs to happen on agriculture. If we are not going to do the phosphorus management tool to control chicken poop on farms, then we're going to need something else, or we're going to have to come to terms with the fact that the Chester River is going to stay polluted, and the Nanticoke River is going to stay polluted and be going the wrong direction. Um, we need to enforce the laws we have. That didn't change, and I think that that's a sentiment that Governor-elect Hogan may appreciate. We have done amazing things in Maryland and put laws in place, and maybe it is time to enforce those to their fullest potential and then see what else we need to do. Uh, the stormwater problem is not going to go away. If you don't have the funding to do it at the local level, then the projects still need to happen, and I'm not sure how someone could balance the state's budget if we put it all into the state to have to pay for those projects. So we plan to stay the course. We have, like I said, we've identified these critical actions that need to happen around stopping pollution, restoring our fisheries, and better enforcement. And it may be that we decide different approaches and that we work with Governor-elect Hogan to figure out, you know, how to do those things. But again, it doesn't change the where we've identified acceleration has to happen. L- let me open the phone to let our listeners uh, join as part of this conversation. 410-319-8888. Uh, let's go to Kenny in Baltimore. You're on the air. Oh, how are you doing today? Very well, Kenny. Welcome to the show. Uh, right. I was listening. I was listening about Virginia. Virginia was trying to do the, the, the rain tax, whatever. But they took it to court, and I think they won. But I want to know, did... Did, uh, did Virginia pass the law and they took it to court, or did Virginia, it, it wasn't passed? I don't know, you know, if it ever passed in Virginia, but I believe that uh, we should take this to court because rain is not a pollutant, all right? Thanks a lot. Uh, I don't know much about that. Allison, you like you, let's go around the room. Allison, Tim? There are stormwater fees across the country, including jurisdictions in Virginia. In fact, I believe it was when Virginia Beach did their uh, stormwater fee 10-plus years ago that the rain tax term was even coined. That was the first time it came up. It's mm-hmm. not new, um, despite what people like to think in Maryland. <laughs> so there are communities in Virginia that have chosen to do a dedicated fee for stormwater. There is not a state law requiring one, and I am not familiar with any case where the, the authority or the question of whether or not you could have a state law requiring it has come up. Tim or Shane? Tim, then go to Shane. 
Yeah, I'm not, not aware of any uh, statewide requirement in Virginia for that either. Uh, Allison's right. There are communities that have adopted these uh, all around the country. Uh, there are some Maryland communities that have uh, voluntarily imposed fees in order to deal with uh, uh, stormwater runoff, sometimes uh, sort of a combination of the flooding issues and, uh, and the pollutant as well. Um, so, you know, the, the big, ch you know, the, the caller's comment about rainwater is not a pollutant is correct. The rain, when it falls, generally, unless, uh, you know, of course, in our polluted air, when the rain falls, it actually carries <laughs> pollution with it. Right. So, uh, so you know, it, it isn't quite as clean as we think in a lot of cases. Uh, it can be very acidic. It can carry um, uh, nutrients that uh, from the sky, from our uh, tailpipe emissions, from power plant emissions that uh, wind up in the bay. So, uh, so the, the rainfall does need to be controlled because, uh, you know, too much of it getting into the bay is, is what uh, basically the problem with the dead zone and the, uh, and the lack of habitat for fish. Uh, quick fluffing machine on that before we hit uh, the callers again. Yeah, that's exactly right. And and we're not we're not taxing the rain anyway. It doesn't have anything to do with the rain. It has everything to do with what the rain becomes. When it becomes stormwater and leaves your property, that's when it becomes a problem for the rest of the state and for the bay. So let me go back to the phones at four one zero three one nine eighty eight eighty eight. Meredith, you're on the air. Hi, hi, hi Meredith. Hi. Welcome. We have Meredith. You there? Hello. Yes, I'm here. I'm okay. here. There good you morning. Are. Well, good morning. Yes. Go ahead. Please go. Um, although I am in favor of stormwater fee as a person who works in income distressed communities and having seen homeowners and small churches struggle with paying the fee and robbing Peter to pay Paul, I think that the rollout of the fee was incredibly problematic and it wasn't messaged properly, particularly to uh, income distressed people and people of color. I think going forward, the environmental movement as a whole needs to do better to cultivate messengers from these communities so that people understand the importance of such fees and how we can contribute to the health of the Bay in total. A lot of people, particularly in Baltimore City, are disconnected from the Bay and its tributaries because folks don't understand its importance. So I'd like to see us come together to do a better job to message correctly and appropriately. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, so I, I think that is that is part of the, the, the part of the issue. I think that maybe one of the things with this with, with this with the fee was. That was. I think there are a lot of aspects of it that were not really thought through nor pushed, in a way politically or, or or just pragmatically, to allow it to work, allow it not to have the opposition that it has. Well, Mark, I mean, uh, the caller referenced Baltimore City, and the city was one of those places, for instance, that did not initially, at least, offer any special credits uh, or, or programs for uh, the, uh, the the churches uh, and religious institutions there. Uh, a number of other jurisdictions. Uh, did uh, set up programs. Uh, Howard County, Prince George's, Anne Arundel, I think, actually reduced the fee, set a lower fee for them, and others offered uh, special programs where they could essentially, if they did control the rainfall runoff or take steps to control it from their parking lots and their buildings, that they would get a credit on their fee. Um, in Baltimore City, that was, you know, it was a different approach. Um, there was uh, some some grant money that was provided through nonprofits for churches, uh, but it was a bit more of a an after-the-fact kind of a thing, and I think there was some some uh, resentment and, uh, and uh, objections to it built in there. Four one zero three one nine eighty eight eighty. A quick call, then final thoughts from our guests uh, before we end the hour. Livingston, you're on the air. Hi. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. Good afternoon, Livingston. My my my, my question uh, it's not really a question; it's actually a concern that this rain tax that we have now was implemented under this administration that we have currently, but before now, early initiated this Chesapeake restoration fee that everyone pays on their water bill, right. whether you have sewer and septic or not, and they have to pay a $30 fee per year. But the fact of the matter is, these companies that pollute the bay and pollute the air currently, and did before, never were required to do anything. That's why the risk was spread against the whole population as far as paying for Chesapeake Bay restoration fee. And there's nothing in place for these companies, even at this point, to pay for any cleanup or anything that's been done before now that's polluted this air that we now pay a tax for, for the rain coming through mm -hmm. the atmosphere and collecting in the moisture and dropping on the ground, in addition to the runoff from lands and stuff like that, and the runoff from these the companies Listen, and the chemical that people put down. 
I think what you're saying is a very. I think I'm gonna, we want to tell the entire discussion about what you just said because we only have two minutes, a minute and a half left in the segment. But I think Shane and and then very quickly Allison, what Livingston has hit part of the nail on the head here. Who pays for what, and do industries pay for the stuff they created? Right. I think the the caller makes an excellent point. There's a there's a larger theme here that's lar- bigger than the environment. It's about economic justice. And in general, in Maryland, we overtax the poor and the middle class, and we undertax the rich, and we undertax corporations. Now, if we could provide some relief there, I don't think there would be nearly as much of an issue with things like the stormwater fee. Now, with the Poultry Fair Share Act, we try to address that because, well, you and I each pay $60 a month towards the Bay Restoration Fund. The poultry companies aren't paying anything. So, and a lot of our Bay Restoration Fund money goes to the cover crop uh, plans and programs, and that's supposed to mitigate the chicken poop and other so, things. I'm sorry, I have to jump in. We have really run out of time, but this, we, we, let's pick up on what we left off here. I think these are really important discussions that we lead up to the, the state legislative session. The, the caller, Livingston, what he brought up, I think is a critical piece of this that I think we, we deserves a much le- more lengthy conversation. I appreciate you, Livingston, calling in and bringing that up. Uh, and I, it is an issue of environmental justice, an issue that I think we need to wrestle with. But I think our three guests here did an incredible job. It's great to have all three of you with us. Uh, thank you once again, Delegate Shane Robinson from the 39th District, thank Montgomery you. County, for being with us. Allison Prost, great to meet you, Maryland Executive Director of the Chesapeake Bay Foundation. Thank Please you. come often. We're probably <laughs> glad to have you here. Uh, and Tim Wheeler, reporter for Be More Green, the Sons of Environmental Blog. Thank you so much for being part of this program as well, always. Thank you, Mark. And good to have you all with us. Thank you all for calling in and bringing up really the important issues that I think all of you did do in the course of this conversation today. Uh, and thank you all for being part of this. The Mark Steiner Show and Soundbites are productions of the Center for Emerging Media and are made possible in part by a grant from the Town Creek Foundation. Our producers are Mark Gunnery and Stephanie Mavronis. Our engineer in WEAA is Andre Melton. Our engineer at the Marvel Public Radio is Christopher Rank. Our intern is Sianna Reeves. Our theme music is by Wal Matthews of Clean Cuts. To hear this show again and podcast our past shows and find information about our guests and the work that they do, please visit us at steinershow.org. You can also listen to and download our podcast on iTunes. And for Public Radio, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community, and WSTL 90.7 FM, Marvel Public Radio, I'm Mark Steiner. Take care.